From the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music. Interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. And now, welcome to tonight's host, John the Vernomatic Verno. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to tonight's show. As always, Thursday night's brand new content drops. I invite you to visit the MetalMayhemROC.com website. There you'll find direct streaming links to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. While you're there, do us a favor, download some past shows, rate and review, and subscribe to the podcast. Recent episodes we had last week, we were on the road with Raven, live from New Jersey. A couple weeks ago, Carl Kennedy of the Rods came in, told us about his new band, The 450s. And at the beginning of the month, we had Sean Peck of The Three Tremors, him and Ripper Owens and uh, Harry Conklin. They just dropped their second album. So go back, check out some of those past shows. While you're there, sign up for our email list. This is our way to stay in touch with you about weekly show updates, free giveaways, promotional items, that kind of stuff. Uh, Tonight's show, we're continuing our series, The History of Metal. This week, we're doing the year 1980. Ozzy came around with that Blizzard of Oz release, Sabbath with Dio, Iron Maiden, Def Leppard, those new wave of British heavy metal bands were releasing their debuts. Priest and Van Halen had their classics, British Steel and Women and Children first. So Metal Walt and Ian O'Rourke of the band Motorlord, they're going to be joining me in just a minute, and we're going to get into that. Just want to remind you about some of our media partners. Uh, I host a live radio show Monday nights on thatmetalstation.com. It's a totally interactive show. There's a chat room, um, bangers from all around, all the way around the world. It's it's pretty cool. Meeting a lot of cool people, sharing experiences, people turning you on to new music. So uh, that's Monday nights, thatmetalstation.com. And also uh, Metal Mark James friend of the show he hosts two kick-ass shows on the weekends friday nights metal marks vault specializing in rare and classic metal and then he comes back for saturday night metal marks audio aggression with uh new and current releases from new bands and older bands with new material you could find all these links and all this information back at our website metalmayhemroc.com So uh, that's what we have for tonight. As always, thank you for your support. Join us on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. Just search Metal Mayhem ROC. We're going to hear right now from our sponsor, Podchaser, and then we'll be back for The History of Metal, 1980. I'm the Vernomatic. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Attention, metalheads. Since we launched in 2019, Metal Mayhem ROC has been the go-to source for metalheads to talk about and hear the music they love. 
We can't thank you enough for being part of the family. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe so you know when we go live. Plus, tell folks why you like to listen when you leave a rating and review. If you're listening on another platform, head over to podchaser.com and type in Metal Mayhem ROC in the search bar. Hit subscribe, then rate the show and leave a comment on why you get your metal fix from the Vernomatic and his guests. Metal Mayhem ROC. Now, back to the show. So talking about a fun time, tonight we are doing our History of Metal series. I have Metal Walt from New Jersey and Ian O'Rourke from Motorlord with me. And we're doing the year 1980. It's a new decade. There's a million bands. So, like the guy says, let's get it on. Live from New Jersey, Metal Walt. Hey, Verno. Hey, Ian. Happy to be here. Looking forward to this big year we're going to talk about for the next hour. As I mentioned, uh, coming out of 79 was a transition year. It was a bridge year of sorts. And 1980 for metal and hard rock was a massive milestone year. I think perhaps it could be the biggest year ever for the genre of music. I mean, in looking at the releases, there were over 40 or more releases from name bands that you can think of. And most of them were single releases. There were a few double releases that year, like that trend out of the 70s, but most of them were single releases. So chew on that for a moment. I also think you saw several highlights and trends happening. Of course, you saw ACDC and Black Sabbath coming to the forefront with new singers. And we had the emergence of Ozzy Osbourne as a solo artist. Uh, Of course, then there was, let's say, the debut releases from Def Leppard and Iron Maiden. And then you saw Judas Priest probably at the pinnacle of its career in history. This was their high point with uh, British Steel. And then certainly you had the rise of bands that were getting established in the late 70s. A band like Saxon, who came out with two really, really great albums in 1980, and it really prompted their careers. And then you had bands that were just getting on the map. Um, the Michael Schenker Group, Girl School, Tigers of Tam Tang. Uh, for example, these are ones that are getting out there and they're moving up the ladder as well. So I think really what it was was a monumental milestone year. And the way we're going to go about it tonight is there would be too many bands to cover all in this episode. So we have decided that we're going to put a focus on a deep dive of maybe the top 10 or so albums that we believe should be discussed amongst the three of us. And then they'll do, we'll do a quick recap of the best of the rest, I, uh, the honorable mention of sorts. So, Verno, over to you. Why don't you get started with the honorable mention ring? So, as we start doing this new decade, 1980, the roster of bands releasing stuff is just just getting completely out of control. Tonight, we're just going to really concentrate on the big 10 or 12 bands that ended up being like the big powerhouses of the metal scene. But there was still bands releasing stuff. So Ian and I right now, we're going to go through a little roster of uh, the bands and what they're doing, like Samson with Bruce Dickinson. They released the album Head On. They're still up and going. And at this point, they're part of that new wave of British heavy metal movement. Bands like Girls School, all like the heavy metal all-girl band, uh, Witch Find, Give them hell and stage fright. They had a couple tigers, a pantang with a wild wildcat. John Sykes pre involvement with White Snake. Girl 
had the album Sheer Greed. Now, Girl was the band that Phil Collin was in before he eventually took over for Pete Willis up in Def Leppard in 1983. Uh, Sirith Ungle, American Metal. They had their debut of Frost and Fire. Uh, what else we got on there? Gary Moore, Guitar Hero over in Europe, had that G-Force album. Budgie, Power Supply. Now, Budgie, again, part of that new wave of British heavy metal movement. Ian, um, there's a lot of bands that you're into. Uh, what do you have from the roster that's releasing stuff this year? Well, one of the bands we've mentioned before, Triumph, they've got uh, Progression of Power, another continuation in that really cool hard rock thing that they've got going on up in Canada. White Snake uh, released Ready and Willing. Um, this is the uh, fourth full length as White Snake. Um, kind of a big deal in 1980. You know, the production's a little bit better. Martin Birch is still tweaking the knobs for him, doing some good stuff. Crocus, um, our Swiss friends there, they uh, released Metal Rendezvous and uh, I believe Mark Storrs, this is his uh, debut with them. Um, and then, you know, you come back to the States, you know, you've got uh, uh, Blue Oyster Cult with Cultosaurus Rex. You had Molly Hatchet, uh, our friends from down south with the, 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 tr the third in their little trilogy of classic albums, Beating the Odds. Um, the first without uh, Danny Joe Brown. You had uh, Ricky Medlock and the boys in Blackfoot with Tom Catton, which is the second in that uh, classic uh, three album set of theirs. The boys in Kiss. You know, releasing Unmasked, you know, that was pretty much a big deal for everybody at that particular time because, you know, Kiss was one of those bands that was really in like a weird flux, you know, but they were trying to make their way into what was going on in today's music. You know, back over to uh, Britain, you know, the one band that, uh, or two of the bands that we kind of got to mention is Diamond Head with Lightning for the Masses, and you had the self-titled by Angel Witch. I mean, when you talk about New Wave of British Heavy Metal, the importance of what it meant to that movement and to bands like Metallica and Slayer and all the boys back this way. That really is some big deal stuff you're talking about. Oh, I totally agree. But uh, I didn't realize Mark Sirachi, that was the first album that he was with Crocus. He wasn't on that very, very, very first one. No, that was another singer, you know, Vern. And I, his name right now escapes me, but yeah, this was the, uh, this was the debut for Mark uh, with them on Metal Rendezvous. He um, he didn't come on until a couple albums later, you know, and that really was kind of uh, one of the things that helped them further uh, shape their sound. You know, you could really see that they were embracing that heavy metal vibe that was going on around uh, America and in Europe at the time. So it was pretty cool. Now, uh, the plasmatics, that punk scene, Here's a fun fact. I, I mentioned in previous episodes, Wendy O. Williams is from my hometown of Rochester, New York. The Plasmatics at that point, that was right when they were gaining a lot of momentum. They ended up going on some of those Kiss tours and actually had some metal tours. So Plasmatics with their album, New Hope for the, for the Wretched. And Neil Kay, mother, Metal for Mothers. What's the story with Neil Kay? He was the DJ over in England that, for the lack of a better term, helped put Iron Maiden on the map. What do you know about that? Helped put heavy metal on the map, really. I mean, you think about you know, the Soundhouse. That was, that was all his idea. Um, you know, this was 
that a landmark album because of the fact you had not one but two songs that appeared on the debut by Maiden. You had Sanctuary and you had Wrathchild that came out, but you also had uh, Angel Witch and Praying Mantis and a couple other bands, you know, like EF, uh, what was it, EF Toad, I think it was, and um, there was a Toad to Wet Sprocket, which is not the same band. But there was a band called Toad to Wet Sprocket that actually released a song on that Metal from Mothers, which I thought was a trip because I looked at the list and I'm thinking, I go, Toad to Wet Sprocket, there's no way. Yeah, there's actually Pretty like cool stuff though, Vern. And then two bands with that name. That, uh, oh, yeah, right. That's the right. That's kind of a trip. I'm thinking it's like, um, uh, you know, some of the band. Like, there's a band I, I just recently found out from Germany called Steeler that our friend uh, Metal Mark had, uh, had displayed this last week, mm-hmm. um, released their album in uh, like 83 or 84, and it's a completely different band than the Steeler that was getting off the ground in 1982 in L.A. You know, so I think there's a lot of rollover at that time until people finally realized, hey, you know what, if we, you know, if we said it first, we have grounds to sue on it and all that good stuff. The other one I wanted to make a quick mention of too, Vern, was um, the Rods with their debut Rock Hard. Oh, sure, that sure. Is, uh, it's uh, I know that it's you know probably a favorite of yours, and it's definitely one of those albums I love. Um, you know, just really great stuff from these guys. You know, I mean, Power Lover itself is just a just a monster tune. So I mean, for people to try to pick up some other stuff other than the you know the the top albums we're talking about, this is a pretty good pretty good list as well yeah good work ian uh way to do your heavy metal homework so like walt said there's just a lot of bands that are out there releasing stuff left and right and we can't cover them all but what we can cover like he said at the beginning the heavy hitters of 1980 Walt, what do you got man uh let's start your heavy hitters of the uh new decade okay so my uh my first uh album that i'm going to talk about is from canadian band rush um, and I'm going to talk about the album Permanent Waves, which was the seventh studio release, and it actually came out very early in the year, 1980, in January. Um, I think they had done a short uh, sort of tour in 79 to try out some of the material on the road, and they were coming off the tour of the previous year, 1978, the Hemispheres uh, tour. And I think, as we've discussed before, that was kind of the peak of their prog era. Um, And what you saw in Permanent Waves was sort of uh, a shift from that full-on prog sound to an album that contained content that was probably half radio-friendly material and half prog still. Um, It was an album that was uh, recorded at Lay Studio in Quebec, Canada. Um, And any Rush really geek fan, such as myself, would really know all about Lay Studio. This was... uh, a place up in, uh, you know, kind of the mountains away from the city, and it was a a, a place that Rush recorded four albums, their next four albums at, and it becomes sort of a place of, like, fan folklore where fans would go up there years after it was abandoned and take pieces of the floor out just to say that they had a piece of uh, where Rush was standing on that floor in the room for those albums to be recorded. So um, it was also... The, the period where the band started writing in a different style, where they never went into the studio with arrangements already pre-made or songs completed, where they would just get together after a long absence and they would get in a room for a few weeks 
and Getty and Alex would really just start jamming on musical ideas. And they always had the tape recorder going. And what they would do is they would actually record bits and pieces of segments that seemed to work for them. And they would just make piles and piles and piles of these segments and riffs um, and things of that nature. All of this was happening while Neil was, Neil was nowhere to be found. He typically went off on his own to another part of the house, in this case to a cottage on another part of the property. And he would start writing lyrics without hearing of any of the musical ideas or any themes of what the three guys agreed upon. Um, and this was really a style that they captured all the way till the end, till their Clockwork Angels, their, their last commercial release. Um, so, you know, I think uh, that's how kind of the lyrics were crafted for Permanent Waves. And I think that, you know, this was a really album that you could say was very successful for them. I mean, it, it hit, hit number four in the UK charts and actually number three in the US, which is, uh, which is pretty high up. And at that point of their career, it was really, uh, you know, their highest chart charting album. Um, I think a lot of that had to do with uh, two of the really radio friendly songs, Spirit of Radio and Free Will, which again were, uh, you know, staples on FM radio and still... To a degree today, you hear them a lot. Um, and I think the other cool thing was it had a, a kind of a catchy album cover, you know? It had uh, this sort of graphic scene created by their legendary artist, uh, Hugh Syme, who kind of created this imagery of, you know, kind of a sexy woman coming out of a tornado with this wreckage all over the place. And you see the clouds and the wind in the background. And she's smiling at the camera and her skirt's kind of, you know, lift it up and you get a little peek underneath the curtain there. And it was just kind of a cool little album cover there that I think uh, sold some albums too. Um, I think, uh, you know, when you look at the other tracks and the other theme of the music, you see that, yes, although it's not a very long album, it only clocks in at about 36 minutes, there's really two songs that stand out in terms of their, we'll call it somewhat prog, but also sort of, the new style of Rush in its new version of complex music. And those are uh, the tracks uh, Natural Science and Jacob's Ladder. Uh, I mean, for me personally, I think the song Natural Science, it's one of those tracks that you can just put on every time and kind of discover something new, as we talked about in a previous episode, like a La Villa Strangiato song. It's in that camp. It has the weird elements of sound, and it starts in with the eerily dark acoustic guitar coming in and it has the build-ups and then it kind of just fades out in this crescendo really really nice piece of music
Rush at this point, they were now a major act. Prior to that, they were really growing and growing and growing, but 1980, they were big. I mean, they were filling hockey arenas all over the United States and Canada. They were as big as it was going to get. All the support acts that they previously supported in the early 70s, such as Uriah Heap and others, they were now support for Rush. So I think um, this is definitely a strong release from 1980. And really, really happy I had a chance to revisit this one and, uh, and give you guys a description of it. Love Permanent Waves. Spirit of Radio and Free Will, they're, they're in my top 10 Rush songs of all time. They have Side 2, still go back to Side 1, Side 2. Side 2 with Natural Science and Entree New. Is that how you pronounce it? That album, I didn't realize it was only 36 minutes long. Love Permanent Waves. Great job, man. Great, great way to wrap that up. Ian? Yeah, uh, the album I wanted to start off with is uh, a big one, I think, for all of us. Uh, it is the self-titled uh, debut album from Iron Maiden. of an album just for what it was at the time um there was really nothing that sounded like this band um you know sure you had your judas priest and you had some others but when when maiden kind of came into their sound and they were putting this material out for people when you see the reaction that some of those deep core fans have i mean you can see why just for what it was and what it still is for a lot of people today um, you know, kicks off with Prowler, which is, you know, <laughs> even going back to the, the early live album with them. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a killer, killer song. Uh, the funny thing was, uh, the song Sanctuary was released, um, in the U S on the release, um, where it was not on the original UK release because, um, you've come to find out that that was set on another release in the UK at around the same time. But, um, you know, still great song, you know, Strange World, uh, Charlotte the Harlot. I mean, it's the way that they were able to mitigate through these up-tempo changes in their songs 
the dual guitar harmonies, the complexities that they had. Neil, or excuse me, Steve Harris with his bass. Um, just all the different things that were going on. But Paul still had this intensity and this melodicism to his voice that really fit those early Maiden albums. I mean, he just has this street wise, I guess is really the only, you know, it's that, it's that street sound. The self-titled album from Maiden is still, you know, one of those top metal albums, at least in my book. Staying in England, 1980, saw the debut full-length album from Def Leppard. Now, they had the EP a year earlier, and they had the tracks Rocks Off and Overture on there, but the band's first full-length was the album with Rock Brigade and Hello America, and it was 11 songs, but it was Def Leppard at their, you know, their infant stages as well. They never embraced that heavy metal label, and they really weren't big on being included in that new wave of British heavy metal from the beginning. I don't know why. It gave them a chance to have an identity, but the band was very young at this time, their age-wise. I don't have the exact dates, but... I believe Rick Allen was like 15 years old at that time, and it was a very young band. This was Joe Elliott, Pete Willis, Steve Clark, Rick Savage, and Rick Allen, like I mentioned. The album did pretty well. Released in March 1980, 51 on the Billboard 200. I remember as a 13, 14-year-old young metalhead when Rock Brigade came out, and definitely a game-changer. There's something about On Through the Night that always stays with me. I look back at it fondly, and just like that first Maiden that Ian just talked about, it had its place. This was also a time when that rawness was coming out. And if you think back and you listen to some of those songs, um, you know, such as, let's say, Rock Brigade or Wasted or Hello America, it's probably their most metal of their time frame, right? And it just shows them in that kind of... uh, maybe undisciplined and maybe they just uh, didn't know which really direction they were going. And this was kind of, uh, you know, a, uh, it was just not very polished and it was kind of their footprint in getting their foot in the door for this uh, stage of that new wave of British heavy metal music. So yeah, I think an, an awesome release and I think it ties nicely into Ian's recap of the Iron Maiden release. I think they're very, there's some common ground there. So I think I'm going to stay in the in the UK and I'm going to go over to discuss my next release, which would be uh, Judas Priest's British Steel. Um, this was an album that uh, I think at the time saw Priest rise to their biggest point yet. Um, I think the the quality of the writing and the end result with the songs and the track list on the album really... You know, I think it was embraced so much by the fans and the critics that, you know, you had songs out there that were accessible to the radio, which, of course, I think put them into that stardom phase as well. Now, this is not to say that, in my personal opinion, it's, you know, doesn't stand up with, or some of the other albums don't stand up just as well with this, because I don't think that's the case. But I do think this was the album that really put them in that stratosphere uh, heights. It was the album that featured uh, a, a change in drummers. You had Dave Holland coming in. This was his debut into Judas Priest. And it's also another one of these bands that, again, we don't call a lot of emphasis to it on the show, 
because there's no visual aspect, but it's the album cover imagery. And it's the, uh, the hand with the heavy metal studded braces holding your typical old style men's razor blade, the raw razor blade with the Judas Priest logo and British steel, you know, kind of cutting to the sides. I mean, if that's not imagery of what the band stood for coming out of the Midlands and the black country in, in the UK, I mean, that's what the band was all about. And I think that uh, that sold it as well. As I mentioned before, you did see a slight shift to the commercial sound with uh, Living After Midnight and Breaking the Law, of course. Very quick, short songs, but very catchy, very radio-friendly. And these are, you know, tracks that uh, would capture an, an average person's ear, not just a heavy metal person. And truth be told, it's probably the kind of songs the the true priests and metal fans have heard so many times before they don't want to hear them anymore. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, you know, and but then I think when you look at some of the other, let's say, staples on the album, you know, such as Metal Gods and Grinder and Rapid Fire, I mean, these are like essential songs from this album. And that's what makes this song, what I think most of us would agree, one of those essential metal albums that every metal guy has to have. And uh, you know, I think of a song like Metal Gods, how it's just different, how it starts off, and you just want to put your fist in the air and pump it. And at the end, I can't tell you how many times I was walking around my house tr pretending I'm Rob with the chains, dragging them at the end, which, funny enough, you learn that those were some sound effects that were done in the house that they recorded. It was, I think, uh, a big box of cutlery of heavy knives and forks and spoons that they just kind of dragged around and hit it with a pool cue to make that sound like, you know, one of the metal monsters was dragging metal around. So, and even... On Breaking the Law, the smash glass, I think, was milk bottles. Um, from the video, when you remember that the cops were chasing them down and there's broken glass in the sound effect, that was milk bottles that they took on the grounds of the building and just smashed them into the ground. So, you know, definitely not like the day, uh, the today's day and age where all sounds can be manufactured on a simple laptop. They had to actually really go out there and do it. So I think, um, I think this uh, album stands up with time. It means, you know, so much so that on the 30th anniversary of it in 2009, um, the band went out on a full-fledged uh, U.S. tour. They hit the sheds in the summer, and they played the whole British Steel album complete from front to back, which I'm sure all three of us can say we saw that tour. And it was really, really great. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's a top album from this era and just another one of the additions that you can just chalk up to 1980 being a legendary year. I can't believe that tour was 2009, and I did see that. Saw that with a White Snake opening. That was a great show. Ian, you got some more gems you want to share with us? Yeah, I thought I'd jump over to another album that shares quite a few of those um, accessible, uh, radio accessible songs. And that's going to be the debut album from what was supposed to be the band, The Blizzard of Oz, but was Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz. Um, this was released on Jet Records, and uh, Max Norman, uh, who has a long, long history working with a lot of great, great bands that we will probably cover down the road, uh, was a producer, peaked at number nine on Billboard. And this was that culmination that, and I think it was probably in Ozzy's, you know, first several albums that did it best where he was able to capture that 
L.A. sound that was going on that Randy Rhodes came from and that he was immersed in because of living in California. But because of what was going on in the U.K. and where they were recording, they were in England and everything that was going on with all of the new wave of British heavy metal and everything that was there, they were able to kind of pull a little bit of everything into the sound. Um, and then you had, obviously you had, you know, the, the magic of, of Randy Rhodes just being that one of those, you know, quintessential guitar gods, you know, the, one of the guys that was in that same peer group with, you know, Eddie Van Halen and stuff that was able to really help catapult this band to another level. You know um, I mean, just, if you look at the first two songs that kick off the album are, I don't know and crazy train, even to this day, whether it be on terrestrial radio or whether it be on satellite radio, you're constantly still hearing those songs. And yeah, like with, you know, breaking the law and living after midnight, you know, they, they might get a little old for some of those people that have heard them for a long time after a while, but they're still kick-ass songs, you know, and that's the, that's the, that's the thing, you know, when you can write a song that still sticks around, you know, I mean, decades later, Great stuff, you know. You've got the, um, you know, the the killer songs like "Suicide Solution" and "Mr. Crowley." Revelation, Mother Earth, has always been a favorite of mine for the, I guess, the elaboration of it. If you had to have a song that was that amalgam of metal and the neoclassical thing that Randy uh, was, you know, uh, part of the infancy of, and even almost a um, a slightly proggish in its own right because of all of the the changes it goes through and everything. It's just a really freaking monster song. And then when it kicks into that dark, heavy riff and, you know, right before the solo and, and then speeds up and it just gets insane. And when you listen to it on the, the tribute album, the live version of it, it just really blows your mind. Um, and then it closes out with the song steal away the night. I mean, it's just, this is an album from top to bottom that really doesn't have, it's all, all killer, no filler. That's, that's really the only way to say it. So um, kudos to uh, Ozzy and the boys for putting out another great album in 1980. It was a great album. You still hear crazy train at sporting events, have it be a football game, a, a, a basketball game or whatever. The royalties from that's keeping uh, Jack Osborne's kids rich for the next 50 years. Oh, uh, let's see. What do I got here? Let's go over to to uh, Germany and the Scorpions. Animal Magnetism, 1980. First album with the entire lineup of Klaus Meine, uh, Rudolf Schenker, Matthias Jabs, Herman Rarabell, and Francis Buckles. No Michael Schenker, no Ulrich Roth. It was the new decade, and like the other bands, the sound is getting a haircut. These are shorter songs, has uh, The Zoo on there, which is one of their staples, Make It Real, 20th Century Man. They even have an arrangement song on there, Lady Starlight. It's the only song ever done by the band, like I said, with arrangements. They had a seven or eight piece band that did everything from, you know, cellos to uh, oboes, French horns. It's a great song. 
And like Walt said before, this isn't a visual show, but the album cover has a female sitting down with a dog next to her, and they're both looking up at a gentleman with the back to the to the uh, viewer. So, you know, use your imagination there. Always love this album. Sometimes it's a gateway album for Scorpion fans that really didn't get the feel of those 70 albums, but yet this was a precursor of some of those 80, the 1980 albums that brought the Scorpions to heights that put them in this heavy hitter category. You know, they're up there in 1984 with the Judas Priests, with the Iron Maidens, with the Van Halens, with their love at first thing. But we'll get there in a few years. Well, any take on um, Scorpions? You're a Scorpion fan. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you said it perfectly in that this is a really good gateway album out of, uh, let's say, one ear of the band into, let's say, the era that would be known as, let's say, the most... Uh, well-known or popular lineup with the the five musicians that are recording on this album. Um, yeah, it's definitely got strong material, but I think uh, when you listen to a song like The Zoo, here it is all these years later, 40-something years later, um, just that back-and-forth chugging of guitars. Um, I mean, who, who doesn't like that? And you want to hear it every time, and, and it's just a cool track. And, uh, you know, the imagery is really, really great, and, and I think this is just the start of you know, a really big era of the 80s that's to come ahead for the Scorpions and put them into that stratosphere of commercial success and they become, you know, truly a global act within the next three or four years. You know, one of the biggest hard rock or metal bands in the world. All right, so so moving along out of the Scorpions, I'm going to cover my next album release, which would be the Black Sabbath album, Heaven and Hell. This is the album um, where it was a, a really change in the band. It was a change in the direction away from Ozzy Osbourne and uh, as Ronnie James Dio enters. Um, and as we discussed prior, this was a band that was on its last legs. They really struggled for the last four or five years of their career in the 70s, putting out subpar product, really meddled in this uh, you know, dire straits of uh, drug and, and alcohol addiction and inconsistency with Ozzy Osbourne. And in comes Dio, and it changed their image, it changed their sound, and it put them on the map as really almost like a rebirth of the band. Um, for me personally, this is a, probably a top five favorite album of mine of all time. I have a personal infinity for the title track, Heaven and Hell. Um, it means a lot to me, um, you know, just from the lyrical, lyrical content. And, um, you know, I think of, uh, again, back to the imagery, you think about the cover, I mean, a lot of the Sabbath albums from the 70s, you know, had a kind of their unique feel, but this one was different. You know, you have three angels uh, in a black backdrop and they're all smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and I think that's the, the perfect explanation or imagery of describing what heaven and hell means. Um, I think, uh, you know, maybe people may not know this, but the material is actually the music was a lot of it was written in 1979. I mean, at that time, Ozzy was still in and out. He came back in at that point. Um, apparently, there's somewhere a demo version of him singing an early version of Children of the Sea. Um, and But I think it was also a struggle where, where Tony was trying to keep the band afloat. Geezer Butler was out at that point, um, and Craig Gruber from Rainbow had come along with Ronnie James initially to uh, do some bass tracks and even Jeff Nichols you find out many years later actually earlier this year 
the Jeff Nichols estate released uh, some demo tracks that had never been heard from rehearsals um, from this era, and uh, they were some some pretty cool stuff. And so he actually played bass on some trucks, some of the tracks too. Um, I think you know the story of how they met. I mean, truthfully, is Tony at the time was actually trying to, to try and make a new band. He didn't. He wanted to get away from the album and the uh, the band name Black Sabbath because at the point Ozzy was out, and uh, and so was Geezer. And he met Ronnie at the Rainbow Room in L.A. and that's where they met and they agreed to start this new band. Which I, I suppose pressures from management and the record label they decided to keep the band name uh, Black Sabbath. Um, one of the first things they did apparently after they met at the Rainbow was he played him that version, the Aussie version of the Children of the Sea, and Ronnie went in there and did what he did best, and he took a stubborn, stubborn stance on things, and he went in and he recrafted it and he made it his own, and that was uh, you know a signs of his persona for his whole career for the next thirty some odd years. Um, you know this was also the change in the time where Ronnie took over the lyrical writing piece from Geezer Butler, so it took the band back to really just creating their music, and, and Ronnie did the lyrics. Um, as every metal fan knows, this is a somewhat of a change in style of music of the songs. A lot more melody was brought in, and that was really due to uh, Dio's extended singing range. And just his style of lyrical content, it altered the band. And like I said, it was kind of a rebirth of, of the band, and the end result is we got a legendary release um, that again dates back to another one uh, of 1980. Uh, I think when you think of the songs that we all know, I mean, just think about the lot the live versions of the title track "Heaven and Hell." If you visit, we go back forward, fast forward to "Live Evil," which came out a few years later, and even the "Heaven and Hell" release from Radio City, um, which was a show I was at from 2007. And the Heaven and Hell version, I think, uh, it clocked in at something like 16 minutes because they expand the songs. Uh, Tony just really features himself in soloing out. Um, Ronnie does this uh, this kind of trade-off of, of the devil and the angel with the lighting and that kind of thing. And that's where the songs really come to life on that stage. And, and you hear that a lot on, on the Live Evil album. But, uh, you know, this, the, the album is just very different from the Ozzy era. It's full of atmosphere. It's got a lot of different kinds of styles. You think of Children of the Sea and Die Young and Lonely in the World. I mean, these have all kinds of ebbs and flows and buildup of different atmospheres and strong peaks and, and some, you know, imagery in there with keyboards and acoustic guitars. And then you have, like, the title track and a racing show opener like Neon Nights. I mean, it's just jammed full of just really solid, diverse material. I think maybe the other one point to talk about here was this was also, let's say, um, you know, I'm, I'm on a not such a nice note, but Bill Ward was really at a low point of his career here. He did record the album. He got out on tour, but he couldn't handle it due to his substance abuse. And he was subsequently replaced by uh, Vinnie Appice mid-tour, who came in and then came on to uh, to be a fixture with the band during uh, the Mob Rules album and, and the band Go Forward. So, again, another one of those, you know, top metal albums of all time. And again, another one that just, you know, cements 1980 as that kind of legendary uh, year in metal. You know, that's interesting that you mentioned that little tidbit about uh, Bill Ward, because back in February, 
they re-released, not the band, but the record label re-released another remastered version of uh, Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules. And this is Vinny Apice talking about how he took over for Bill Ward in Denver of that tour when he played the first show. Here's Vinny Apice talking about joining Black Sabbath on Heaven and Hell. How did you get that Sabbath gig? And give us a little story about that period because... I remember as a young teenager going to those shows and loving those two releases. Give us a little insight on the Sabbath days. Uh, it started in 1980. Actually, I was I was doing some things for Ludwig Drums in Chicago, and then my uh, wife at the time called and said, hey, uh, somebody from, uh, well, I know what it was. It was before that I went, before I went to Chicago, and I got a call from Sharon Osborne's office and she got on the line and told me Ozzy was putting a band together. And uh, we heard about you, we'd love you to fly to England and uh, hang out with Ozzy, see how it goes. And you can play drums or, you know, just hang out, see, see if it's compatible, you know? So uh, I thought, oh, wow, Ozzy. And I thought at that time, Ozzy was, you know, out of Sabbath, he was drinking, he was pretty crazy. So I thought, let me ask my brother what he thought of Ozzy and I, called my brother Carmine. <laughs> I said, is Ozzy nuts? And he goes, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, cause he's, he's known him for quite a while and he said, yeah, he's pretty crazy. So I turned it down. You know, I was young and I just didn't, uh, think it all the way through and I turned it down. And then about a month later when I went to Chicago, uh, while I was there, my, my wife, ex-wife said, uh, somebody from Sabbath called. I went, well, really? All this in one year. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, when I got home, I called them and they said, uh, we're in town. We're in the middle of a tour, which is called Heaven and Hell. And they were in Denver playing McNichols Arena, but Bill Ward never showed up. Um, he was having some problems and they had to cancel the gig and postpone it. So they had four days off. So they came to LA to find a drummer. So they got a hold of me. I don't know how. And uh, I spoke to the tour manager. He said, uh, why don't you come down and meet Tony tomorrow? And we hit it off right away. We got, we hit it off really good. And then he invited me to come meet the band tomorrow and, uh, you know, have a jam, have it play. So that's what I did. I put all my drums in the car and went to, uh, SIR studios on, uh, where was that? Sunset Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And that's where we played for the first time. That's the first time I met Ronnie and Geezer, uh, Tony the night before and Jeff Nichols. And uh, right before that, I heard Neon Knights on the radio, you know, driving in the car. And I, and I thought, wow, that new singer, Dio, he's, he's really good, man. Let's, they sound great. And they go, what do you want to play? I went, ah, oh, shit. I wasn't a huge Sabbath fan. Uh, I mean, I was a, a fan, but I didn't know every song, you know. I've heard the song. So they go, what do you want to play? I thought, well, that ne Neon Knights was pretty straight ahead. I know the tempo from just hearing it. All right, let's play Neon Knights. So that was the first song we ever played together. I didn't have it down very good, but it was it was good enough to tell if it fit in, you know. And uh, then they said, "Yeah, let's let's do it," because they only had four days. So it was only four days to uh, rehearse, and that was one of the days already. So we had to get down to it. Then they were so happy, everybody went to the pub. And that killed a couple of hours, and uh, <laughs> that yeah. happened a number. Of, the next day, too, <clears throat> we played a little bit, and then everybody went to the pub. I stayed back at the rehearsal with Jeff Nichols, and we went over the tunes and stuff. So 
uh, I had to learn a whole bunch of songs real quick. Interpretation, any memories of Sabbath? What's your take on the Sabs? Yeah, I mean, those the two albums with Dio are just, they're monumental albums. The one thing that I, I always draw a parallel to between uh, Blizzard of Oz and Heaven and Hell is that conjoining of that what was going on with the metal and hard rock scene in L.A. and with what was going on with the metal scene in uh, the UK and Europe at the time, you can see that the influence all the way around kind of coming out in both of these bands where they are able to get in on, you know, uh, the same stages with these bands and everything is linear. There's no, you know, oh, this is the dinosaur sound from the day or, oh, this is the California sound. No, it sounds very metal. It's just metal and it's perfect. One of the bands that I wanted to talk about um, had their third album, third full length uh, this year, was uh, Motorhead with the album Ace of Spades. And this is another band that is the quintessential, well, they call themselves a rock and roll band, but they are so monumental in the new wave of British heavy metal sound and heavy metal in general, really. This album is probably their best known album amongst everybody uh primarily for the single ace of spades um it was released on bronze records actually peaked at number 15 on the uk charts um but this thing is just killer from beginning to end with classic songs that everybody knows and loves um you know and when i was going back and listening to it again you know, it, it starts off with Ace of Spades, you know, right off the get, you, boom, hit you right in the face. And then you've got songs like Love Me Like a Reptile. 
shoot you in the back. You know, you jump forward a little bit. You got We Are the Road Crew. I mean, who doesn't know that song? You got Jailbait, Bite the Bullet. The Chase is Better Than the Catch is probably one of the coolest riffs just for the way that it rolls along. It's just, and it, you know, it's not that, that you know, speed hammer sound, you know, that you would, you know, come to know with Ace of Spades and certain songs. It's just got this cool chug to it. And it just drives along the whole way. And Lemmy with those tongue-in-cheek, lyrics and the way that he presents himself and another guy that with the voice that you can't picture motorhead without hearing lemmy you could never you know when they said that the band was gone well they, they needed to be gone when he died because nobody played the bass like him nobody sang like the man and this album is just it's so good uh, really this is part of that when we had mentioned before you know you have motorhead was one of those bands though that they are fortunate enough to have several groupings of three or four albums in a row. This is the third off the classic album lineup. And then you'll see more that are going to come forward um, as we go through the eighties into the nineties and beyond. I mean, it's just great band, great album. Um, I can't say more about it to, you know, other than go out and listen to it because I, I, I think you need to. I love motorhead. I remember uh, seventh grade, the older kids on the late late school bus had a boom box and they were jamming No Sleep Till Hammersmith. And at the time, 1981, this was a year after Ace of Spades, that was the hardest shit around, you know, Motorhead. And you're right, Lemmy always said, yeah, we're just a rock and roll band. We're not a heavy metal band. They just, you know, projected the imagery with the leather and the studs and you know, the the bullet belt buckles, and that's their contribution. But they were they were England. And, you know, the heavy metal movement, like you mentioned before, with uh Neil Kay, you know, with that whole soundhouse tapes and being the DJ at the at the rock and roll club and all of that, Motorhead really just personified that. And they're a three piece band and you know, they're god awful ugly. I mean, past ugly, it, it was just, you know, Motorhead. And I think that's just what made them so cool. And just, they were your band. It was like, it was the perfect F you to whoever. It was like, like, well, what's that saying? Well, what's that saying Motorhead has? We're louder than everyone else or the loudest thing on earth. What is their slogan? Yeah, it's something like that, or I always remember Lemmy coming on stage saying, we are Motorhead, and we play rock and roll, and that was it. Yeah, and he'd flick a, like, Marlboro filter, smoking a Marby down to the filter into the crowd, like on cue. I think that, you know, the, the one thing with him coming up, especially when they did, when you had the you know, the, the early, you know, metal stuff that was coming and you had the punk movement that was there, him making that statement that we're a rock and roll band was because they felt that there was no need for there to be labels. All these bands were rock and roll. Punk was rock and roll. You know, metal was rock and roll. It's all rock and roll. It's all an attitude. And that was the thing that he, they pervade that the most. If there was one person that quintessentially pervaded the most, it would be Lemmy. You know, from the from the time he hit the stage until the time they was put in the ground, Lemmy was rock and roll. So that's you know, rock and roll, heavy metal, it all goes together, baby. 
What goes together is AC and DC, 1980, back in black. On one hand, a masterpiece in, you know, the high point of their career. On the other hand, tragedy and a low point of their career. Because this album came out in July of 1980, but they lost Bon Scott to a drinking overdose in February of 1980. If you really stop and think about that in today's landscape of how things are, that's amazing how uh, when ACDC 1979, they're coming off the Highway to Hell success, their most commercially acclaimed album, best sales in the States, everything that they're trying to achieve through that progression from those earlier albums, they achieved with Highway to Hell. They had that, uh, the, the single was a radio staple they were getting they were doing it and then again bon scott dies the band um regrouped day after they buried bon with the encouragement of their producer mutt lang they held auditions and they brought in brian johnson from an old scottish band geordie now the the kicker on all this was brian johnson he was quote retired the band Jordy really wasn't doing anything. They had a, a, a popular song at the time over there, but they weren't going anywhere. And it was a recommendation of, I believe it was Mutt Lang or someone else in the uh, uh, higher ups with the ACDC camp that recommended Jordy or uh, Brian Johnson. So as the story is told, Brian Johnson was contacted about auditioning for a band and it turned out to be he didn't know who it was until he went to the audition and he knew the acdc guys he gets the gig they go down to the bahamas and record the album and come on it's it's a masterpiece it's the biggest selling rock album there is acdc highway or um, back in black the track listing just it's a uh, talk about AORs. Hell's Bell, Shoot the Thrill, the classic, uh, You Shook Me All Night Long, the title track, Back in Black. Uh, deep cuts are legendary. Shake a leg, have a drink on me. It's just, it goes on and on and on. And the ironic story of all this was while they were doing it, Brian Johnson wrote the lyrics. He was having the writer block and Angus and Malcolm, they would write the music and Brian Johnson, as the story goes, went into another room and he was trying to figure out how to write lyrics to Hell's Bells. And it just so happens because they were down in the Bahamas, a huge storm has had started. And what did he hear? Rolling thunder, pouring rain coming on like a hurricane and brian johnson has said that 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 opened up the creative floodgates and he ended up writing that album and if you go back outside of the music you look at those lyrics 40 plus years later it still gives you goosebumps and it still to this day doesn't get old back in black what do you guys feel about Back in Black? What's your memories of this classic album? Ian? I can remember being in elementary school and we were 
allowed to have certain days, I think it was Fridays in gym class, where kids could bring in albums. And back then, you brought in a vinyl album. You didn't walk in with anything else but the vinyl album. And one of my friends, and his name, ironically enough, was Brian Johnson, brought in the album Back in Black. And I can remember that coming across the little record player in the gymnasium and echoing out those opening <laughs> refrains of Hell's Bells. And I was like, what is that? And ever since then, it's been an album that has stuck with me. The one thing I always liked about it was the sonic characteristic, the power of that album. You could see where they were getting there when they were when they did Highway to Hell. But when Brian came in and they got in the studio and they were doing what they needed to do, this album never sounds dated. It sounds fresh and crisp and powerful to this day. And it stands side by side with anything that was hard rock or metal that came out at that time up until this day. It's, it's a great album, Landmark, like you said. So ACDC, Back in Black, legendary. Ian, uh, what else is going on in Europe? Some uh, metal bands on a crusade? What do you got? Well, I think it goes without saying that one of the most important bands in the new wave of British heavy metal and in metal in general is Saxon. And Saxon wowed us with not one but two albums in 1980. Wheels of Steel, released on Karari Records, peaked at number five in the UK. And this has got just a plethora of great songs that we all know. Motorcycle Man, you got 740 stuff and Strangers in the Night, Wheels of Steel, Freeway Mad, Street Fighting Gang, Machine Gun. I mean, this album is another one of those timeless classic albums just because of the intensity and the crafting of the songs that are on this album as well. And then you jump forward to later in the year and they released Strong Arm, Strong Arm of the Law on Karari, which this album peaked at number 11, kicking off with the song Heavy Metal Thunder to Hell and Back again, Strong Arm of the Law. 20,000 feet is just amazing. And the UK version closes off with the mammoth, mammoth song, Dallas 1 p.m., uh, which is a little bit of a nod to the assassination of JFK. And funny enough, when it was released in the U.S., they bumped that to the first song on the album. So you get two different uh, mixes or two different uh, song listings, depending on where you pick up the album. But I think that we, all three of us have said it, um, we've gone on record before. Saxon is a favorite. Saxon is monumental. Saxon is timeless. And they are one of those bands that anybody that has not heard of them by now, I, I don't know how you couldn't have, but you need to do yourself a favor and get out and check out not one, but two albums from these guys released in 1980. One of the greatest albums of 1980 is by one of the greatest bands there is in Van Halen. Women and Children First, 1980, saw the really the first Van Halen album that wasn't uh, conceived and pulled from the 25 demos from the Zero Days. And The Cradle Will Rock. 
stabbing in early keyboards. Everybody wants some. David Lee Roth adding his flair that only David Lee Roth could do. Sure, there were some songs where parts were from older songs. You know, there's parts of um, Fools that are parts of other older songs and Romeo Delight and even Take Your Whiskey Home. But that's been a Van Halen signature move all the way through their career. But the, the, the overall projection of the, of the uh, album, everything from the front cover and the back cover, that's an uh, infamous picture of the Van Halen guys with Roth and, and, and Michael Anthony on the back cover. It just uh, personified cool. There was nothing cooler than David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen to this day. But back then, they do have um, first album, Eddie and Dave, they play guitar together on Could This Be Magic? That's never really been done before. Uh, Tora Tora, Lost of Control. Some say Van Halen's attempt at heavy metal, if you will. And one of my favorite tracks of all time with Van Halen, and I was really stoked on the last tour when they played it, was In a Simple Rhyme. Eddie Van Halen just um, just takes that guitar playing to another level. Now I'm not a player, so I am not one to even begin to talk about the, the knobs and frequencies and the stuff behind playing guitar. All I know is it's still some of Eddie's most tastefully crafted work. Romeo Delight was always a show opener on some of those tours. It was just fantastic. Circling back to everybody wants some. Alex Van Halen is just, he comes from that old school Bonham, Ginger Baker, big bass sound. You know, Alex Van Halen, again, very underrated. Michael Anthony goes without saying what Mike's contribution to one, the Van Halen sound, and two, just, he's not Billy Sheehan. He's not all over the place. You know, he stays in his lane. So, Women and Children First, uh, fantastic album. And here's a fun fact. The back cover picture, the photographer just couldn't get the vibe of the picture. And finally told the guys, listen, threw him a bean, a joint, said go out and smoke this and come back with an attitude. And in that picture, you see Michael Anthony holding a joint. That is the story behind why he's holding that joint because it was literally five minutes after they came walking in from the back parking lot. Ian, your middle name's VH. What's your take on women and children first? The one thing that needs to definitely be noted is on the original vinyl in sleeve was the very promiscuous picture of David Lee Roth in nothing but his leather pants being chained to this chain link fence. That is the epitome of just fucking cool David Lee Roth right there. Romeo's Delight is probably, if it's not my favorite Van Halen song, it's like one of the top three, really. It just is. And when you hear Eddie in that solo, he just shreds from beginning to end all the way through and just totally nails it. And then in a simple rhyme, I mean, that is the epitome of great songwriting. That song in itself is so perfect. I mean, it's just, oh my God. You just, I, I, that album, and I think I mentioned this to you before, I always go back and forth, but Women and Children First is my number one pick for Van Halen. 
It's a great album. Fools is another song that the stomp that it has, that boogie, that that slow, bluesy, heavy stomp. It just all the way through. And I wanted to touch base back when you talked about loss of control, because one thing that goes unnoticed until recently, the last couple of years, I never really even paid attention to it myself. But there are isolated drum tracks of Alex Van Halen. And they have all the way going back to I'm the one on the first album. And then they have him on the second album when he does uh, Let Up the Sky. And then they have Loss of Control. And one thing that you will notice when you listen back to the drums on Loss of Control is even going up against the mighty Motorhead and Judas Priest at this time, Alex Van Halen's double bass playing is faster. It is on point. It is just monstrous. So if you ever get a chance to go on YouTube and look for those isolation tracks, do yourself a favor and do it because it's just killer. But yeah, I love the album. Bravo all the way around. in with that ending. 
I mean, it's just, oh my God. I think there's nothing more I can add except that I'm just having this imagery of, you know, how imagine as a kid or even an adult, every time you listen to everybody wants sums and that kind of slow period in the middle of Alex just kind of lightly tapping the drums and Dave comes in with his, you know, the stockings and, you know, no, 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 leave it on. You know, that kind of thing is, it's just the imagery that he painted imagining him, in a room doing whatever he's doing and it just adds so much more texture to the song and I think that's where that beautiful compliment between Eddie and Dave came in which is why I agree with Ian from a few episodes when we talked about it how Van Halen is you know is will always be Dave's band and uh, nothing against Sammy because I love him equally but there's something about what he brought to the table let's say through that song that that even adds to the that mystique there so yeah well done well done guys amen so the year 1980 will go down in history as the start of the greatest period in heavy metal history fantastic releases i want to thank my co-pilots on this journey metal walt from new jersey and ian o'rourke from the band motor lord i invite everyone to visit the metalmayhemroc.com website there you'll find archive pieces on some past episodes. Join us Monday nights for the Metal Mayhem ROC live radio show on thatmetalstation.com. And again, do us a favor. Visit podchaser.com. Put Metal Mayhem ROC in the search box. Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. We're out of here. Thank you for listening. I'm the Vernomatic. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one and keep it heavy. Metal for Life. Thanks for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our websites at MetalMayhemROC.com and MetalForever.com for information on upcoming concerts, podcasts, archives, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. Catch us next time on WLFE TV Radio. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.